0: Father, we thank you, Lord, for another day. Thank you for getting us out of bed today, Lord. Thank you for sustaining us and keeping us and keeping our hearts beaten, Lord, keeping us alive. Pray that you would fill us with your spirit this morning. Strengthen our hearts, Lord. Help us to fix our eyes on you. Help us to have the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Lord, we pray that we would love you more, that we would love your Brothers and sisters, our brothers and sisters, your sons and daughters more, Lord, unify us in the faith. Help us to keep the heavenly perspective, Lord, the big perspective, to get outside of ourselves, to consider others more important than ourselves, Lord. Help us to stay humble before you. So, Lord, bless this message. Encourage us today. Strengthen our faith in you. And be with us this morning. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen title of today's teaching is What is a Christian? What is a Christian? I'm deviating from the study that we started in Colossians. We've done two teachings through Colossians, and I told Leah last night, I'm going a separate way, and she goes, already? You just started Colossians, and I'm like, I know. I can't stop but teach topical messages from time to time, and the Lord puts different things on my heart throughout the week, and I feel like I need to share some of them, and I was going through a walk through the community this week where I live, this small tract of homes, and I just felt like this theme came to my mind, Christianity 101, or what does it mean to be a Christian? Such a fundamental question, but so much to it. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. You know, last month of video, what is a woman appeared on Twitter. What is a woman? 170 million views within a couple days. Now, it came out, I think, about a year ago, but it was released on Twitter, and it got a lot of backlash, and it was censored at first, and people got Elon Musk involved, and then they finally begged him, like, for the name of free speech, show this, v- allow this video to be shown, and he did. And like I said, 170 million, that's an underestimate. They say maybe 200 to 300 million people viewed this documentary within a couple days of its airing for free on Twitter and, you know, in this documentary, Matt Walsh sits down with college professors and people on the streets he interviews and he talks to sociologists and psychologists and he asks them basically this bottom line question, what is a woman? Many of them don't know how to answer that, surprisingly. He goes to the college, the University of Tennessee, sits down with a doctor named Dr. Patrick Grisonka. Part of this interview stood out to me. Let me just share part of it. Dr. Grzanka stated at one point in the interview, quote, I think when someone tells you who they are, you should believe them. If someone says they're a woman or a man, that's them telling you what their gender is. Matt Walsh responds in part with, I'm just trying to get to the truth. And, um... Grzonka then states, I'm really uncomfortable with that language. So I'm trying to get to the truth. And he says, I'm really uncomfortable with that language. Getting to the truth. Walsh says, why is that uncomfortable, Dr. Grzonka? It sounds deeply transphobic to me. And if you keep probing, we're going to stop the interview. Here, Matt Walsh is trying to get to the truth. What is a woman? And at one point, Dr. Grzonka says, a woman is a woman. And he says, okay, but... Is there more to it? And he goes, A woman is a woman is a woman and he's like, That's circular reasoning. Do you know what that is? And he didn't have an answer, right? And Matt Walsh is, you know, going after the truth and here the truth is transphobic. Today the truth is bigoted. Today the truth is hateful. If if you just believe in the truth. Christians were people of the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life he said when the spirit of truth comes he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment people don't like the truth because it convicts spirit of truth convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment i thought of the interaction between jesus and Pilate, where jesus said i've come into the world to bear witness to the truth everyone who is of the truth hears my voice To which Pilate responds, what is truth? There's Jesus standing right in front of him, truth incarnate, and Pilate says, what is truth? John 8, 46, Jesus said, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He's going to the Pharisees, the religious leaders. He's speaking the truth about God and who he is, the son of God, and that unless they repent and believe That he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. They'll die in their sins and they continuously question him, doubt him, don't want to believe. He says, I am the truth. And Paul in Galatians 4.16 says, have I therefore become your enemy by telling you the truth? Even those within the church, when you tell the truth, people don't want to hear it. There's a lot of confusion in our day. Good is being pronounced as evil, and evil is being pronounced as good. 1 Corinthians fourteen thirty three says, God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And we know where confusion comes from. Confusion comes from the enemy. He blinds, subverts, schemes, plots, plans, deceives he's a liar and there's no truth in him john eight forty four. jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him whenever he speaks a lie he speaks his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies christians are people of the truth we have the truth we herald the truth we love the truth we cling to the truth we follow Jesus who said, I am truth. Now, my heart's been pretty heavy this week um, for a couple reasons. I'm sure most of you have either seen the movie Sound of Freedom, or at least maybe read an article on it or seen an interview with Jim Caviezel or those that are in the movie or that main guy who, his name's slipping my mind right now. But I'm sure some of you maybe know the story or seen the movie and as I was researching it this week and as I was watching interviews and the more I read, the more disgusted I got, the more frustrated I got, the more overwhelmed and devastated and heavy-hearted I got because of what I was hearing and reading to the point that at one time I went into my daughter Mercy's room and I just grabbed her and I was just weeping over her. I was just holding her. She's probably... She's two years old going, what is going on with daddy right now? (laughs) What is he doing? But I just wanted to hold my kids, you know, and be there with them after seeing the numbers and hearing the stories of what's going on all around the world with sex trafficking and and enslaving of kids and all these things that are horrific and unfathomable. And they're going on around the world, but they're even going on in our own country. I heard the attorney general of Utah say that he thought, this surely was just going on and outside of the U.S., if not outside of his state, yet they did this one sting in his state and they, I think they uncovered like one of the biggest sex trafficking schemes in America, he said. He's like, this isn't our state and it's crazy and it's, it's devastating and it's just gross. And It makes the doctrine of hell and the wrath of God and judgment seem all the more reasonable and real in light of the things that you hear and see in this dark world. And then as I was researching that, Leah looked over to me at one point and said, I could see it in her eyes, something happened, something went wrong. And she said, did you hear? Greg Key died. And I'm like, oh, Lord. And most of you guys either know Greg Key Uh, You know, Travis, who was out here several months ago or earlier this year, Uh, Travis, uh, Greg Key's son, Greg Key went to Blessed Hope Chapel, Simi, where I grew up and where we just came from, where I moved from, Simi Valley. And so that was devastating, died unexpectedly, and we still don't even know all the details, at least I don't, to what exactly happened, something happened at his job. Um, And so I just reached out to Travis, and I've been texting him back and forth, and So just make sure you keep him in your prayers, keep Marissa in your prayers, Leanne, Greg Key's uh, former wife. Um, Just the whole thing is just uh, devastating. And so I know Travis listens to some of these messages. So, you know, if you're listening, Travis, we love you, bro. And we're praying for you. And so, yeah, it's just really, really uh, difficult. Travis lost his brother-in-law, Nick, last year. Now he lost his dad marissa lost her brother now her father-in-law so really heavy things going on so keep them all in your prayers you know jesus is the prince of peace and he said in john 16:33, these things i have spoken to to you that in me you have peace in this world you will have tribulation but be of good cheer i have overcome the world Be of good cheer, King James. Other translations say take courage. Tharseo is the Greek word there. It means to be emboldened from within. Find confidence from within, from the Holy Spirit, because Jesus said, I have overcome the world. He said that before he went to the cross. He said that before he rose from the grave. It was as if it was done. I have overcome the world. And if you're a Christian, you overcome through him. We will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of of our testimony, because we have not loved our life even unto death. We will overcome. We have a Savior who overcame. I found myself praying this week Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Just put an end to all of this, please. I know some things need to happen prophetically, I know there's going to be a falling away, and the man of Lawlessness is going to seat himself in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God and Jesus will come back and destroy him with the breath of his mouth and by the beauty of his appearing. But man, part of me is just like, come Lord. Come right now. Put an end to all of this. Put an end to trafficking and put an end to abuse and abortion and murder and the list goes on and on. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. That should be our continuous prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we should long for as Christians. Now listen to Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses seven through nine, and this is speaking about the return of Christ, and this is in the context of the Thessalonians who were undergoing persecution. They were being afflicted. They were hurting. They were going through pain and difficulty, and Paul uses the return of Christ to bring them comfort. He says, And to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Rest for us, retribution, judgment for the wicked. We get a picture of this, a glimpse of this in the Old Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah, where here's righteous Lot, we're told in First Peter, I believe it is, it says righteous Lot, his soul was tormented day after day until finally he was rescued. On that same day when he was rescued, retribution, devastation judgment was poured out in Sodom and Gomorrah you look at Noah's ark that same day when Noah and his family went into the ark the place of refuge the place of rest everyone around them was destroyed and so it will be with us when Jesus returns we'll find rest we'll find relief we'll find comfort we'll find joy while the world will be judged for their wickedness so the question I want I want to answer today is, what is a Christian? It's a very basic question. Seems pretty simple. What is a Christian? Perhaps there's things going through your mind right now, even as I ask that question. What is a Christian? That seems pretty simple, but even sometimes the simple things we can overlook, we can forget about, we can drift from. And we don't need to, like Matt Walsh, go down to the streets or go to a college professor or a sociologist or psychologist, or we don't need to find our answers from the culture, God's word tells us what it means to be a Christian. And just as the world around us is confused, I believe that many in the church are confused. They can be confused about our, mar- our marching orders, what it means to be a Christian in this world, what he calls us to, what we're to bear witness to, what does it mean to be salt and light. I mean, how are we to respond with hope when the world's in despair? How are we to respond with joy when there's depression all around us? How are we to respond with peace when there's anxiety all around us? How do we respond with love when there's hate all around us? How do we respond to the truth when there's lies swirling all around us? You know, in high school, when I was playing football, we were given a playbook. Probably many more plays than we even needed to. I always felt like they made it more complex than it needed to be. Here's a 700-page playbook, okay, go learn it. And it's like, I'm a wide receiver. Just you run, you catch the ball, and you try to run to the end zone. I mean, for me, I'm just so simple-minded. It's like, why do you have to make things so complex? You know, the X receiver does this, and the Z goes here, and this goes here, and know what the linemen are doing too. That's important, and this, and I'm like, now I'm so confused, and I'm overwhelmed, and I can't play well. Just tell me to line up when he says hike, go. Maybe go this way, go that way, catch the ball, go. But here's the point. You know, I'm memorizing my playbook, and, you know, it's pretty important that if the quarterback calls a play and he tells me to go this way, and that's my job, if I go the other way, well, if he expects me there, he could throw it, interception, the other team gets the ball, they score, we lose. It's a illustration of us in the church we don't know the playbook, if we don't know our marching orders, if we don't know what God's called us to as Christians, we're all running around like chickens with our heads cut off. We're not on the same page. We're not in one accord. We're not united, and we're not going to be salt and light in this world. We need to know the word. Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. If we don't know the truth, when all the lies are swirling around us, we're not going to have a defense for the faith. We're not going to have a strong faith in the Lord. We're not going to be able to trust him when difficult times come. We need to know the truth. We need to love the truth. We need to proclaim the truth. Now, sometimes I have a three-point message or a five-point message, and when I was looking at this topic, what is a Christian? I'm like, There's, this is probably going to be like 50 points. I was like, maybe this is going to be, I could do like a 10-part series on this. I mean, we could walk down through all the things that Jesus commands us to be as Christians, and as I was walking around in the neighborhood this week, and I'm thinking, okay, I think I know what I want to preach on, and man, I, I can't wait to get into the Word, and to just see all these like 50 to 75, 100 points, all these commands, and wrap them all together, and then I started putting together the message, and I have a one-point message for you today, all right, the rest of our time, it's just one point, point. and as I sat there and was praying, I go, I think this is what undergirds all of what we do in Christianity, This is what sums up what is a Christian. And it's this one word, humility. Humility. No person has ever become a Christian in the history of the world without humility. It's a defining mark. I might even say it is the defining mark of a Christian. You must humble yourself You must acknowledge that you are a sinner, that you are in need of a Savior before you embrace Jesus Christ. You embrace him as Savior. You embrace him as Lord. The humility is what drives you to the cross to say, I need you. I'm a sinner. I'm headed for hell. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm convicted and I need your mercy. I need your love. I need your forgiveness, Jesus. And it drives you to the cross where your sins were paid for, where Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God, took upon the sin of the world. His blood paid for our sins. He satisfied the wrath of God for us, and then he rose on the third day to confirm who he was, the Son of God, conquering sin, conquering Satan, conquering death forever. So if someone says they believe in Jesus what they're saying is I don't believe in myself. I don't believe I can save myself. I I can't trust myself for my own salvation. I trust in Jesus. So what you're saying as a humble person needing the savior is I am not Lord. I am not God. I am not savior. He is, Acts 4:12. There is no other name given under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. There's only one way, and it's through Jesus Christ. And I want to illustrate this point. I want to take us to two texts today. The first one is Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 17. If you want to join me there, I want to illustrate this point the importance of humility in the Christian life. And I believe the entire book of Luke, Luke is underpinning the story of Christ with humility. And as you're turning there, even as I was looking through Luke last night and this morning, I remembered Peter. If you remember the interaction, one of the first interactions Jesus had with Peter, where Jesus does this miracle and Peter says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man and he falls down before Jesus. Even Peter, a man who struggled with pride from time to time, initially showed humility in coming to Christ. And then you look at the end of the gospel and you see there's these thieves there on the crosses next to Jesus and one of them comes to his senses and finally says, "Why are, don't you fear God? And he's rebuking the other thief. Like, don't you fear God? Stop hurling insults at him. He's innocent. We're not. We deserve this. And then finally he cries out to Jesus, Lord, remember me in your kingdom. This Prayer of humility. Lord, remember me, the sinner. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Humility from beginning to end. Even Mary, she goes, I am a humble bond slave of of God. When she knew that she would bear the son of God in her prayer, she says, I'm humble before you. Humility all throughout the book of Luke. So in this passage, Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 17, let's read it says, and he also, that's Jesus, he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay the tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them saying, Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it at all. If you you do not receive the kingdom of God like a child, you won't enter the kingdom. If you don't have humility, summing up Jesus' words there, if you're not humble like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And you see a contrast here. begins in verse 9. He's saying this parable to rebuke the pride of the Pharisees. They trusted in themselves, it says in verse 9, that they were righteous. What they're essentially saying is, I'm righteous. I'm good. I don't need the righteousness of Christ I don't need an outward righteousness because I'm righteous. Look at my accomplishments. Look at my works. Look at my goodness. When really we know that our good works, apart from Christ, are filthy rags. Isn't that crazy? Here they think, my works are so awesome. Look at me, and really it's the opposite. It's like dung before the Lord. And then you look at verse 13. I love the humility of this, this tax gatherer the jews hated tax gatherers the pharisees wouldn't eat with them in matthew 9 i think it's 11 jesus is eating with the tax collectors and the sinners and the pharisees rebuke him what are you doing eating with these people they're like pigs they they rip off the jews they're not even they're getting rich off of our taxes and our money who are you to eat with them jesus jesus said i have come to seek and save that which is lost see in verse 13 here here he is standing some distance away. Some commentators believe even that's a sign of humility. He doesn't want to get close to people. He kind of wants to stand at the back of the temple. Pharisees wouldn't even stand next to the tax gatherers and other supposed sinners because they felt they were so holy. We get to go to the front. We get to wear this religious garb and show that we are God's men. So here's this man standing a distance away And he's not even willing to look up to heaven. He's just looking down. He's sobbing inwardly and probably outwardly. He's just looking down, and he's hitting his chest. He's just beating his chest. He's crying out to God, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He doesn't bring anything to the table, nothing of himself. You don't see anything in verse 13 of his accomplishments. Like, God, be with me, the sinner, but remember this, Lord. Lord, I, I, I have done this. What about the, it's all God word. It's all just pleading and it's all from a place of humility saying, I am a sinner. The contrast is striking. In verse 13, that word for merciful, your translation will probably say mercy or merciful. It's translated, the Greek word is heloskomai. It means to be propitious be gracious make atonement for my sin the hcs bible states it puts it this way god turn your wrath from me a sinner it's the same greek word helaskamai mercy merciful there used in hebrews 2:17 where it says that jesus made propitiation for the sins of the people helaskamai he made propitiation he made atonement When he died on the cross for our sins and bled on the cross, that atonement, the wrath of God he bore in our place, and that's what this tax collector is pleading, that his sins would be atoned for. And it says he went down justified, made right, justified before God, forgiven, saved, because his childlike faith. Now, it's no wonder that Jesus called the Pharisees children of the devil. He was as bold as to say, your, your father is the devil. John eight forty four. The Pharisee in this parable is full of pride. I thank God, verse 11, that I'm not like other people. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. It's all me-centered, all I-centered, right at the center of pride is I. Me, me, me. What does it sound like? It sounds starkingly close to Satan's heart in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. Listen to these verses. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. This is Isaiah 14, 13, and 14. It says, and I will sit on the mount." of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. Arrogant, conceited, proud, the same heart of the Pharisee. Me, me, me. Look what I'm going to do. Verse 15 then goes on to say, nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. You'll be thrown down. And that's what Jesus says in this parable. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The heart of Satan is pride. The heart of the Pharisees is pride. And what is the heart of the wicked world all around us today? Pride. Type in the word pride in Google. One of the first articles that will pop up is LGBT pride with a rainbow flag and heart, okay? Pride is all around us. The question is, how do we respond to pride how do you respond to the pride all around you you maybe say with the truth yes we expose it we rebuke it we correct it we despise it we hate it yes 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 but what undergirds all of it i believe is humility you don't fight pride with pride you fight pride with humility second timothy two twenty four through 26 if you're going to memorize any verses these are several verses that i think you should memorize the lord's bond servant should not be quarrelsome but kind to all able to teach patient when wrong with gentleness correcting those in opposition if perhaps god may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of their of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, being held captive by him to do his will. They're ensnared by the devil. It's like a net that they're trapped in. That's all that they can do is sin. That's all that they can do is go after their own fleshly desires. And what is the job of the bondservant, according to Paul, as he's teaching young Timothy? Don't be quarrelsome. Be kind to all and with gentleness correct those in opposition. He doesn't use the word humility necessarily there, but it's a heart of humility, kindness, respect, gentleness. Peter says, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you, but do it with gentleness and respect. Humility is all throughout the Scripture, even though the word isn't necessarily used. The way that we interact with our brothers and sisters in the Lord and the way we interact with the world is from a place of humility a place of kindness, a place of gentleness, constantly pointing them to the truth, but from a heart of humility, realizing that apart from the grace of God, there I go myself. If it wasn't for God's grace, where would you be today? If it wasn't for the saving grace of Jesus Christ and the cross of Christ, where would you be? Where would I be? That creates a heart of humility. It's also a humble heart of obedience to the Father, we respond the same way Jesus did. How did Jesus respond to the prideful world all around him? Submitting to the Father's will. That's what should be our desire. Lord, I want to do your will in this world. Yeah, I feel this way, Lord. Yeah, when I hear this or that on TV, when I read this article, when I hear this person saying this or that, this is how I feel. This is what I want to do. But they're responding off of feeling and only emotion. Are we going to do the same thing and just whatever I feel, that's how I'm going to respond? Are we going to check our feelings, check what is going through our mind and subject that to the word of God? We want to have the attitude, the heart, the mind of Christ. Here's the second text, Philippians chapter two verse three through eleven. Philippians two three through eleven. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So he begins by saying, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And the word for empty conceit there, translated in the King James, is vain glory. NIV says vain conceit. NASB, empty conceit. It's translated in the Strong's Concordance or defined as empty pride. Kinodoxia is the Greek word. It's a state of pride which is without basis or justification. Empty pride, cheap pride, vain pride. Don't do anything from selfishness or from a prideful heart. Do everything from a humble heart, is the Canary translation. Everything that you do is not from selfishness, it's from selflessness. Everything you do is not from a prideful heart, it's from a humble, contrite, not self-reliant, but God-reliant heart. That's the basis of this text. And to further his point, he then says, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Let me illustrate, Paul says, let me show you what... Humility looks like. Here's Jesus. He's in heaven. He's equal with God. He's in the form of God, and he empties himself. And not only does he empty himself to become a human, he becomes a slave. Doulas. Most translations say bondservant. It's actually a stronger word meaning slave. One who looks to the master. One who has no rights of their own. Who submits willingly to another. Says, I am a slave. You are my master. And that's why we see over and over in the Gospels, Jesus said, I have come to do the will of my Father. I have come to do the will of him who sent me. I just want to please my Father. Whatever the Father tells me, I say. Perfectly obedient to the Father, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So if we're following in the footsteps of Jesus, we're saying, Jesus, you are Lord. I am not. I'm following in your footsteps. I am your humble slave. And as a slave, not like the slave trade that existed hundreds of years ago, and not like many slaves today that are mistreated, that are abused, that are maligned and hurt and all these wicked things are done to, no, we're a slave that inherits the kingdom. We're a slave that the master says, I will freely give you all things and you will rule and reign with me. And just as Jesus submitted to the Father, we submit to Christ in humility and just as Jesus with the prideful Pharisees all around him who as they were crucifying him under the Roman rulership, they were mocking him, they're saying, if you are really the son of God, come off of that cross. Go ahead. That's what you said. You said you can save yourself. You said that you would tear down the temple and in three days raise it up. They're sitting there mocking him. They're dividing up their his clothes. How does Jesus respond? He humbly goes to the cross yes there's times earlier in his ministry when he's rebuking the pharisees to the fir- their face he's calling them whitewashed tombs and essentially you bag of snakes you guys are supposed to be shepherding israel you're supposed to be preaching the truth you're supposed to be loving my children israel and you have not done that and he says, Your house is going to be left to you desolate. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stones the prophets, kills those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen does her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Your house is going to be left to you desolate. You're not humble. You're prideful, Pharisees, and your destruction is coming. For whoever is proud will be brought low. It's all throughout the scripture. God wants us to remain humble. Jesus is on the cross. What is he saying? He doesn't say much, but one of the things he says "His Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's praying for his enemies. You ever been maligned? You ever been mistreated? You ever just been frustrated with someone or angry at someone? Someone's wronged you? You pray, Father, forgive them. Let me share the impossible verse with you. Okay? This is something none of you can do. Okay? Get ready for this verse. Here's verse impossible, Matthew 5, 44. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Think of your enemies. Think of the enemies of the church today. Just think about them. Think about Sound of Freedom. Think about LGBTQ and that whole movement. Think about people that are trying to lead kids astray. Think about ISIS. Think about enemies. Think about real enemies. Put a face on them. Can you love these people? Can you pray for these people? I mean, who is Jesus talking about here? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Those who beat you up, malign you, spit in your face, punch you, throw you in jail and crucify you father forgive them for they know not what they do he's praying for them and he's extending love his hands are held out to them he wants to forgive them of their sins he died in their place no threats no retaliation just humble obedience to the father anyone here been killed by their enemies okay you're obviously here and breathing I haven't either. But imagine the pain, the suffering that Jesus went through to the point of death, and yet his heart towards these enemies. I must admit, I've had a struggle this week. Had a real struggle when looking into the evils of this world, as I've already mentioned, but particularly the evil towards children. I told Leah, I have a category in my brain when evil happens to adults. This person wrote a book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? And he went on Larry King and all over the news and promoted this book. People are like, wow, this is an amazing topic. Why do bad things happen to good people? And it's very easy. There are no good people. Uh, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve death. So you can pretty easily dismantle that one. None of us deserve anything. We deserve wrath. We deserve punishment. We've all sinned, and we know what we deserve. And it's only by the grace of God that we live and are saved. Thank you for your grace, Lord. But why do bad things happen to children? Why do bad things happen to infants and little ones? And how are they abused and sex trafficked and all these wicked things that I was reading about? And I, I've, I know that it exists, and, but when you're reading the story and you're reading the personal articles and the things that have happened, if it doesn't cause your heart to break, if you don't get heavy hearted, and if there isn't a little bit of blood boiling somewhere inside your soul I think you got to check your spiritual pulse that's just my opinion I think the Bible would back that up but I was getting frustrated I was getting angry I was getting heavy-hearted I was getting overwhelmed to hear about all the numbers and all these things that are going on and I was hoping maybe it's just a small amount and they're saying no it's increasing it's increasing 500% every year oh it's increasing through our border it's increasing and I'm going I I can't even watch any more of these interviews just getting so downcast. And I was pleading with the Lord, as I said, come, Lord Jesus. But at one point, I'm like, Lord, just wipe these guys out. Wipe these people out, Lord. No more. Put an end to this. No more harming of these little children. And then I found myself relating to Job, Job 21, verse 7 and 9. He says, why do the wicked still live and continue on? And also become very powerful. Their houses are safe from fear. Neither is the rod, of God, the rod of God on them. And then I read Psalm thirty-five, seventeen, and David is pleading with the Lord. He's pleading for himself, but I believe it applies. And in the third person, here's the prayer. Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue their souls from their ravages, their only life from the lions. I could relate to the words of Habakkuk in chapter 1, verses 3 and 13. He says, Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? kind of here underneath all this is Lord I don't understand the Lord spoke directly to David the Lord spoke directly to Job the Lord spoke directly to Habakkuk the Lord spoke directly to many saints Jeremiah and many of the other prophets who had this same struggle Lord I know you're real I know you're righteous I know you're pure I know you're holy so how is this happening how are you allowing wicked to flourish and almost every single one of them at one point or another, finally says, I put my hand over my mouth. I repent in dust and ashes. I will rejoice. I will exult in you, O Lord. I don't understand. This doesn't make sense. But I know you're good. I know you're holy. I know you're true. I know you're real. And I'm entrusting my life to you. Psalm 10, verses 1 and 2. Why do you stand far off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. Psalm 10, verse 12, arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Psalm 10, verse 15, break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. David had a lot of harsh things to say against the wicked. The Bible has a lot of things against the wicked and their destruction is coming. Perhaps part of it is just to magnify the patience of the Lord, the goodness of the Lord. Wow, his grace is amazing that he's this patient with the world just as he was patient with you and I. Even the most innocent, pure, righteous, holy man seem to have struggled with this. Wrestled with this in some mysterious way. When you read commentators and theologians, they don't quite fully understand Psalm 22, verse 1, which Jesus quotes on the cross. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The question why, all throughout the prophets, all throughout the Old Testament, even in Jesus, why have you forsaken me? Yes, he took on our sins. Yes, the wrath of God was upon him. Yes, the land went dark for hours. And In some mysterious way, the Father seems to have turned away from Jesus as the sin of the world was laid on Christ, and the Father cannot look on sin. And so Jesus struggling, I believe, somewhere in his hu- humanity and being fully divine, and God is... He knew he was going to go to the cross. He told his disciples he was going to go to the cross. He fulfilled all the prophecies, and yet the struggle, why are you forsaking me? If anyone knew suffering, anyone knew pain, if anyone knew ridicule, if anyone knew shame, it was our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet we're told in Scripture When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He bore our griefs on the cross. He carried our sorrows, was pierced for our transgressions, and crushed for our iniquities. He was anguished, grieved, and forsaken for our sin. Yet he was faithful. He was triumphant. He was victorious. He overcame and we will overcome in him. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sore, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Meditate on texts like that. Memorize texts like that. If God is for us, who shall be against us? God gave his own son for us that he will freely give us all things in him keep your eyes on jesus when there's wickedness all around us when there's darkness all around us keep your eyes on the light draw near to the light draw near to god and he will draw near to you so in closing what is a christian it's someone who says lord i bring nothing to the table I have no works. I have no accomplishments. I have no accolades. I'm falling before you, Lord. The only thing I bring is my sin. So though I don't understand, I trust in you. Though I'm hurting, Lord, and struggling and maybe going through a trial, I trust in you. Though I'm in pain, Lord, and though I see pain all around me, and though it doesn't make sense sometimes, I trust in you. As Peter said, Lord, where are we to go You have the words to eternal life. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. There's nowhere else to go. So Lord, we trust in you and Lord, use us for your glory. Amen.